This is Wes Morgan, Premier League winner, former captain of Leicester City, and this is the Olympic Mindset Podcast. On the first day of training, everyone stood back and thought, who is this guy? After the game thinking, whoa, we just beat Man City. This could actually happen. Loved by not just the players, but the fans, the city. But when you do lose someone that's close, I think my only advice would be to... Hello, and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset Podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. I'm delighted to announce that during the break we've been very busy planning the Olympic Mindset Retreat. In 2024, you can join us for the weekend or even just for the day to develop your personal network, to learn from the amazing guests that you've heard on the podcast and to engage in some high quality training. If you're interested in attending the Olympic Mindset Retreat, please register your interest at theolympicmindsetpodcast.com. It's going to be an amazing two days. We're really excited to see you there. So without further ado, season three, episode one, Wes Morgan. Wes has been voted one of the greatest Premier League captains of all time, beating odds of 5,000 to 1 to win the Premier League. But Wes's story is a lot more complex than that. He comes from non-league all the way to become the Premier League champion. He's had to overcome many different obstacles, including dealing with the tragic helicopter crash which killed the chairman of Leicester City Football Club and four other people. He talks with honesty about the impact that day had on himself, the team, and how he overcame the tragic loss he experienced that day. If anything you hear in today's episode impacts on you, please join us at theolympicmindsetpodcast.com and check out our partner pages for help and support and guidance. I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you today. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Before today's episode begins, I wanted to take a moment of your time to talk to you about our latest partner. Today's episode is brought to you by ClassVR from Avantis Education. ClassVR is an award-winning, all-in-one VR and AR system for schools. It's designed specifically to help raise student engagement and increase knowledge retention. I was first introduced to ClassVR back in 2017 when I was a deputy head teacher, and it provided me with creating exceptional learning environments. And it has done for more than 1 million students in over 100,000 classrooms in 90 countries across the globe. ClassVR is unique in that it was designed from the ground up solely for education. Headsets are classroom ready with everything an educator needs to deliver fully immersive VR and AR learning experiences to their students. And with thousands of curriculum-led resources, your children can walk with dinosaurs, hold a beating heart in their hands or travel the world without leaving the classroom. Now, regular listeners will know that I'm a passionate educator and I'm lucky enough to have experienced Class VR firsthand in my classroom. And I can't tell you how wonderful it was to witness when my students were truly engaged in their learning. ClassVR empowers teachers to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. If you're interested, visit classvr.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. So, Wes Morgan, thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. Oh, I forgot to ask at the start of the call. How was your holiday? Holiday was all right. You know, it was half term, so it was good to get away with the kids and looking outside the, out the window it's pretty dismal out there so it's nice to get away get some sunshine and yeah get a bit of downtime do you go anywhere nice dubai oh nice nice <laughs> we've taken the kids to the atlantis a few times atlantis on the yes. park yes 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 we went there but yeah the water park's amazing there yeah 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 did you go on any other ride did you go on it yeah i get dragged around by the kids so uh yeah you on the one with the glass floor no, I don't go on them ones. No, I leave it to the uh, the daredevils. Nah, I take it easy. You know, I just go on the the big ones where it's a two person one or four. You're on the lazy river, aren't you? I can tell. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So obviously, Wes, you've had amazing success. You know, 
just for our listeners, because again, to reiterate, you know, this podcast is called the Olympic Mindset Podcast, but based on the feedback we've got from our listeners, we started to branch out slightly. We've got some amazing guests we've had on. We've had on the founder of Reebok. We've had on uh, Mike Brown, obviously England fullback, and now yourself, you know, so we are starting to branch out. But I think the principle remains the same. I think the mentality or the mindset it takes to get to the top in the Olympics is probably the same as it takes to get to the top in in football and sport in general. Would you agree with that statement, Wes? Yeah, I would do. Um, obviously, different sports would um, need different demands, I suppose, and different approaches. Um, I can only speak f- f- from football. And, you know, I think mindset-wise, you have to have that determination. You have to have that. Um, drive that want to to win and to compete, especially when there's so many ups and downs in sports. How you come out the the lows um, to get back to the top is is so important, and having a, a strong mindset is is uh, is key for me. I think that's a really good point you've touched on because most of the things we found coming out of this podcast are resilience being probably number one. Um, you know, not being rejected too badly when you come up against something difficult, finding a way back. So obviously, you know, we're going to go through your journey now. And before we touch on your success, you know, winning the championship, winning the Premier League, winning the FA Cup, I think you were player's player, player of the season. I also think, weren't you football manager team of the decade? Um, I'm not too sure. I say I know you were. Yeah, I was in the team, of the, the FL team of the, the decade. Um which is, you know, great. But yeah, you know, just listing some of the my achievements and accomplishments is uh, it's a bit of a reminder sometimes, I think. And uh, you, you forget how, how well I probably did in my career. Well, you know, we spoke about this off camera a bit. You know, you've had, I would argue, a dream career, really. You've managed to have all this international, national success at the very, very highest level. I mean, if you look at the statistics around it, it's something like 1% of people in the academy system never get to get a pro contract. And then you go above that, 0.5% of players get to play in the Premier League. And then I don't even know what the percentage of people that get to win the Premier League and captain their team internationally. You've got to be in the top, I would argue, 0.1%, 0.2% of players. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's incredible. And obviously the work I'm doing at the moment, um, I'm on a course, a master's degree in sport and directorship. So I think uh, one of the, the assignments was, you know, looking at academies, um, and looking at uh, young players and them coming through. So those stats I'm familiar with, but it's incredible, you know, because there's so many kids in the system all want to try, you know, be a professional footballer. And the reality is looking at the stats, you won't make it, you know. So how do we create, you know, different pathways? How do we not make them get too bogged down on the idea of, you know, I'm just going to be a professional footballer. I'm just going to be a professional footballer. And giving, you know, some type of options to them because football is not the be all and end all. That's a really good point. And you know my brother, Damien Broad, former academy manager at Newport County, currently at Bristol Rovers. They do a lot of work around making sure that young players have a plan B and they get lots of ex-pros in to give advice and hopefully they take it. But for our listeners, we're talking about people in careers here. We're talking about people looking for new opportunities, promotions, new jobs. How do we ensure that they have a plan B, plan C, plan D? Because I firmly believe that we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket. It's really healthy to have a plan B so that if things don't work out, we've always got something to fall back on. Taking this back to your story, Wes, you're released at Notts County at such a young age, such a crucial age as a teenager. How did you overcome all of the feelings of failure when you're released? And then how did you bounce back from that? What was your plan B? Yeah, so just given that the... um got to the point I've been in the academy get to the point where they give out the YTS so I think that's around about uh, 15 16 when you 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 become a full-time YTS so I think they call it the the scholarships now um and I was at Knox County and to be fair to them you know in terms of of money and what they could afford to give they didn't have much resources or much uh, finances in, in that sense so I remember at the time hoping, you know, to get a contract, get a YTS, thinking, yeah, you know, that's the next step in your kind of your career where you want to try and get to. And two kids got it, uh, the YTS, and they didn't give any more out. So at that point, you know, it was a very, very low point for me, um, you know, especially a kid, probably very uh, naive in the sense of, yeah, that's the only thing I can do. 
Um, and I was, yeah, it was a bit of a, a shock to the system and not to have that YTS. I wasn't sure where I was going to, where I, what I was going to do next. And what did you do next, Wes? Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously, you know, that was hard to take, very disheartening. And um, I thought I still can play, you know, so in terms of football wise, I um, play for a semi-pro team, a local semi-pro team called Dunkirk FC. And I thought, right, I need to, you know, think about how I'm going <laughs> to pay for stuff and shape my kind of life. <laughs> so going to college is probably, you know, a good solution to that and, and what I'm interested in. Uh, and I studied business, business studies, oh, there, nice. which was, you know, very good. And I've always had a, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I've always had a, inkling that I wanted to do something to do with business yeah you know so I thought you know a business study course would be a good to see how I like it um and maybe something could come from this so you know playing semi-pro going to college doing business studies I did after I got rejected from Notts County so where's be honest now how hard was it for you to go from being on the cusp of being a professional football player to having to go back to college with you know, regular lads playing on the parks, playing semi-pro, whatever. Was that really difficult for you to, to adjust your mindset to? Because um, it takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? It takes a lot of humility. Yeah, to you know, I think people that. take it differently, you know, and um, <clears throat> I think my dis- biggest disappointment was obviously not progressing, you know, and that was the most difficult thing to take. But on the flip side, you know, I've always kind of been close to my friends, um, I played a lot of local football, you know, for my local team and then for the for the city. So Nottingham City boys, you know, I was playing for as well. Um, so it wasn't, I think a lot of kids these days are stuck in a system and they're in this bubble yeah. where, you know, 20 years ago when I was coming through, it wasn't a, a bubble. It was more, it's much more open. So you're playing for, you know, the youth team, but at the same time, I'm playing for my school team as well. I'm playing for the local Nottingham City boys, you know, so I had a lot more people to probably lean on and and talk to in that sense. And it was difficult. I'm not going to lie. And to be fair, not many people know this, um, but I think just before the youth team was due to come back for for pre-season, they asked me, oh, would you just come and do some training with us, you know, pre-season and see what happens? And I remember thinking to myself, um, I'm still kind of upset that you let me go and I'm in no way near good shape to, to join into pre-season because I know how hard it was. So, yeah, I declined it. Wow. I declined it and I thought to myself, you know what, maybe football might not be for me. You know, I know I'm good enough. Um, but at the moment, I probably need to think more about kind of my future and the realisation that I might not make it as a footballer. And that's when I'll start to play semi-pro for, for Dunkirk and go college. And I was playing for my college team as well. That's amazing. And I think to have the maturity to recognise that if you'd have thrown yourself back in then, it probably, it probably wouldn't have worked out. And, you know, to go back and start again, I think it's a really sensible decision. And quite often, you know, I would say, I would argue in you know, for today's generations, it, younger generations, it must be very difficult because they see all the success on Snapchat or whatever, or Instagram and social media. And it seems like very instant success. Whereas yours, you know, we've discussed this, yours came later in life. You had to really work towards it, setting constant, you know, goals to get there. I think it must be really challenging for young lads coming through or, and young women coming through the academy system, not getting a pro not having that instant success and then having to start again and, and work their way back up. It must be extremely challenging for them. Yeah, it definitely is, you know, and like you mentioned, the social media side of things now, you know, you see a lot of young kids on social media um, talking about playing for Chelsea's, the Man United's, um, you know, for big, big teams. And in their head, they probably think, I'm going to make it as a footballer. When the reality is, according to the stats, you know, you most probably won't, you know, but you can't crush the dreams. You still have to nurture them and drive them. And I think sometimes you have to give them the option of you might not make it in that club, but there's levels, there's so many levels in football and you might have to drop down levels to come back up, you know. So there's ways to soften the blow um, and it is very difficult and you know, sometimes even the parents don't help. You know, the parents, you know, want their little kid to, to be a footballer. 
they love football. My kid's going to be a footballer. Told everybody. And when they get released, it's a bit of a, you know, it's hard to take. It's very disappointing. And how do you face people when you've, you've built up this persona of your son, your daughter being a footballer? And it's, it's not happened. It's been taken away. That's a really good point. And it brings us back to the original comment, which is humility. I think humility is a really key factor. Every single person I've interviewed was humble. And even now, you're still humble in the face of everything you've achieved. You don't even know half the things. I've had to like remind you. <laughs> but I think that's so important because we all get sometimes carried away with success or the promise of success. But ultimately, you haven't got it until it's there in the bank. So I do want to skip ahead a little now. So obviously, Dunkirk playing semi-pro. I'm going to give you an interesting fact now. It's widely regarded that the best transfer of all time was Gary Pallister for a bag of balls. I would argue that you were a better transfer because you cost the kit. <laughs> well, that's how the story goes. I'm, I'm entirely, I'm not 100% entirely sure of what happened, to be honest. Well, yeah, you know, I think that, you know, we'll just go with the story anyway because I think it's incredible. Um, and I know, you know, knowing Dunkirk and the people there and my old team, you know, they would have done some type of haggling. And Forrest, at the time when they signed me, would have done some type of deal. So I'm not surprised if a kit, a full kit, was thrown in as a part of the ah, deal. Ah, nice, nice. Well, amazing. It's still an amazing story. And similar to Gary Pallister, I think what it shows is when you make your way through those ranks in non-league. You know, there's a very, there's a big jump, isn't there, between non-league and, and professional. How did you find that when you stepped back up and you got your opportunity at Nottingham Forest? Was it a huge step for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, at the time, Nottingham Forest was, you know, one of the best academies, you know, well-renowned for the way they, you know, producing players that's going into the first team, the way they play their football. Um, so it was a big, you know, opportunity for me. And um, it, it came about from one of my coaches uh, for the college team, uh, coincidentally, that had connections at Nottingham Forest and thought, you know, he's really good. Sent me for, well, arranged a trial. So I had a one-week trial at Nottingham Forest and, you know, I'm buzzing. I'm thinking, right, you know, this is a good opportunity and I'm nervous, but I know deep down what I'm capable of. Um, so it's just showing that. I had a one-week trial, um, then one week turned to two weeks, two weeks to a month and a month to end the season. And I just remember, like, the, the standard was so kind of high and I felt myself so raw in terms of, you know, meeting the standards and the levels. Um, but I knew there was a, key, a few key things that I was showing that must have kept them interested and think, you know what, this guy must have something very raw on the outside. But if we can, you know, there's something there that we need to, you know, keep and maybe we can work on the other bits and, and that's what it is. And I didn't play. I didn't play for the team when I joined. I think it was maybe half a season I didn't play because literally just training, getting fit was their priority and getting me to, you know, a certain standard that they were happy Did with. Did you struggle with the fitness then? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've always been a big guy. And I remember the kind of the, the, the college, the college kind of life. Yeah, you just go to the local chip shop, you go to the local kind of like Greg's, whatever it might be. Uh, and that was lunch, you know, so that was just the norm. And, you know, exercise-wise, I would have just been playing maybe a match or two matches over the weekends and then maybe a couple trainings, which would have been light. It wouldn't have been like intense, like how it should be. So fitness-wise, I was just way off it. So that's one of the main focuses for, for Forrest at the time to get me to a a fitness level that was, you know, they was happy with. Um, <clears throat> so I remember just going to the games on a Saturday, watching the youth team players play. And probably an hour before, I was doing laps around the pitch, just doing runs. And it was horrible. I think a lot of people might have got really, like, probably upset by that and frustrated, you know, but I just saw it as a, a means to an end. You know, I, I knew it was necessary and... I believe, you know, doing that has def definitely helped me, um, you know, get to where I got to because then I eventually got my chance. I love that attitude. It's so important to sometimes recognise that when we're challenged with something that maybe affects our ego. We have to remove our mm -hmm. ego from that and see it as a means to an end. It's not winning the battle, it's winning the war, isn't it? We yeah. face these decisions in business and in work as well. You know, quite often we'll be challenged by somebody or challenged by something that can affect our credibility or, or our ego or maybe even our status. 
And sometimes I've seen people respond in quite a negative way or an emotional way. And you think, God, remind yourself of the yeah. bigger picture. Have you always had that well, mindset? I believe so. You know, I think probably just my background and, you know, how I was brought up, probably just the area and surroundings, you know, and the circumstances. Knew what it took to kind of always kind of fight and, and to work hard and, you know, how much it means to, you know, have certain things and, and be around certain people. That's kind of my character. But when I started to, you know, break into, you know, the youth team at Nottingham Forest, I think that definitely helped, you know, because I, 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 like, I, I don't know, it's probably not right for me to, to say, but I don't think I had an ego. I didn't think I had, you know, I didn't believe I had any kind of giving right of anything. I've always liked, you know, probably a lot of people said, you know, you, you're very humble. I think just going into it, being polite, just being honest and working hard has definitely helped me. Um, probably win over the coaches and you know get me probably further on in, in my football career. Well, I think there you go. That's the title for our podcast. Nice guys finish first. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes we lose that the value of being humble, being hardworking, being patient, being polite. I think these are all things that if we were to write down the people that we would love to spend time with, that's the list. But we sometimes lose sight of that. I think. So moving on now, Nottingham Forest. What was Paul Hart was your first manager? Yes, Paul Hart. Uh, he was the first team manager at that time. Yeah, um, he was a character. He was a good guy. You know, I think he had a bit of a soft spot for me, being a local lad, being from a bit of a tough area. Um, I think he definitely had a soft spot for me. Uh, there was a lot of opportunities where the youth team would train against the, the first team. And I think I definitely caught his eye. In terms of physicality, you know, I was right up there with um, the men. When I was 15, you know, I was playing Sunday team for my dad's friends and stuff like that. So I could handle the physicality of it. And a lot of kids at my age, uh, at the youth team at the time, would struggle with the physicality of it. I was pushing the first team players around and eventually got my opportunity, you know, which was which was fantastic. And um, it was great, you know, and that's where it all begun. Yeah, so you were the golden boy, basically, coming through with the youth system there. Well, uh, far from that, I tell you, far from that. Even when I actually got to actually start to, to play for the youth team, I wasn't playing, I was on the bench. So I had to wait my time as well because I think it was Michael Dawson ahead of me, you know, bit of a golden boy, fantastic player, you know, tipped to, to do big things. Uh, there's another player called Tom Groves. He was captain for England and stuff like that. So this guy from semi-pro, unfit, trying to break into the academy team at the time. Uh, I had to definitely wait my time. And I remember when I first got my real opportunity, there's a competition abroad called the Dallas Cup. And you got teams from, you know, there's a team from Argentina, there's teams from USA, lots of teams in this tournament. And I went there and I knew I was going to be on the bench. But then one of the defenders got ill and didn't make the trip. So automatically, I'm stepping into, you know, I'm starting. And that's where it all begun. We played, we ended up winning the tournament, played really well. Um, some of the, the kids were calling me Soul Campbell. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, that's where it all began for me. And then after that, you know, I was playing all the time in the first team for, for Nottingham Forest, but he did send me away to Kidderminster to gain first team experience first. So that's where I officially made my, my debut. I went on loan to Kidderminster, which was an eye-opener, you know, because I think probably League Two at the time. And just the way they do things was very interesting. This is quite funny listening to you, because obviously in education, it can be quite similar, you know, when you move schools, move settings. The things you just took for granted in one place just don't happen in another. So, you know, for you stepping down to Kidderminster, what were the big things that really stood out to you? Were there any significant differences there? And what were the weird little quirks or changes that you saw and thought, wow, what is this? I think, you know, without, without you know, going to um, 15, 18 plus, um, yeah, I think just, just their the kind of mentality of like, right, we played the match. We have to make sure we're going to the bar straight after and start drinking pints and stuff like that. You know, even at that professional level, but level uh, league too, you know, that was their mentality. And, you know, just the training things and I probably can't mention too much more. But, yeah, you could just see the difference in, in standards and, and levels compared to, you know, Forrest was at the championship at the time. Was there a big difference between the management and the leadership styles as well? Because I'm assuming Paul Hart was really 
quite focused, quite professional, quite ambitious. I mean, was it the same at Kidderminster? Did you see the difference there in the way that the leaders conducted? I think the similarities in terms of, right, what's expected from us on a match day. You know, we want to work hard, we want to fight for every ball. You know, Paul Hart was big on tactics. We would work on shape a lot, you know, so building up from the back, um, how are we going to play? How are we going to look at the opposition? How are we going to beat them? I think that's the difference, you know. I remember at Kidderminster, it's probably like we're facing this team. This is our shape. There wasn't much talk about how we're going to build, play up, how we're going to set up in possession, how we're going to set up out of possession. And that's just the difference. So you made your debut for Nottingham Forest. I think you lost 3-0, but you got man of the match. Paul Hart came out and said that you were the standout what player. Is that, is that Port Vale or is that another game, Reading? Red, think you lost three right, Yes, my debut was at Port Vale in the Cup, uh, but my, my the league debut would have been that game, Reading. Did you have family in the stands? You know, talk me through the emotions and the build-up to that game. Were you told the night before? <laughs> I actually can't remember much about the game. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think I, think I played... Uh, my, I made my debut at left-back in the league. Being a local lad... My family and friends all sport Nottingham Forest. You could hear the crowd roar when a goal went in from my house, you know, as a kid growing up. You know, so that's how close I am to the stadium and, and to the team and the club. And to say I actually played for them, um, you know, it was a massive achievement for the first team. It was massive uh, for my friends and family. I tried to not overthink it. I'm thinking, right, this is what you're here to do. You just have to hit it head on. That's, that's my kind of mentality. You know what? Don't, don't overthink it. Don't worry about making mistakes and just, just play and do what you Not know. that you remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a... Still an amazing achievement to get man of the match. We'll move on swiftly on from yeah. that then. <laughs> so, the big move to Leicester then. That was a big money move at the time. I know today's currency doesn't seem like a lot, but it was a lot of money at the time. How did that come about, first of all? Did you have an agent? Were you supported through that? Or did you just get told one day you, you move in? Yeah, you know, being at Nottingham Forest, nine and a half years, um, and my personal aspirations to try and get into the Premier League, you start to think, is this going to happen with, with Nottingham Forest? At the time, I was going through some financial difficulties. You know, I've been there a long, long time. I would love to get to the Premier League with, with Nottingham Forest, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. And I remember um, thinking, right, what's some other options? And then Leicester uh, got a call from Nigel Pearson um, saying, we're interested, you know, what do you think? Do you want to come? And looking at Leicester at the time, I knew they had just been taken over by some new owners, very ambitious in terms of, right, we want to get into the Premier League. Nigel was so good on the phone talking to me. He, his vision was to get the best players in the Championship and build a team that I can challenge to get into the Premier League. And he wanted me to be a part of that. You know, it was a good deal for both parties. Um, it was difficult to leave, obviously, being there so long. But I felt I gave all I had for Nottingham Forest and I just needed a new challenge. So I went in January... 2012, I think it was. Yeah, so that half of the season, we missed out on the championship. The next season, we got to the playoffs and there's the famous game against Watford where it was the second leg. We had a penalty last minute. Everyone thinks we're going to get into the playoff finals. He misses the penalty and they go and score the other end. Um, and then that was the end of that. So it wasn't that season either. It was the season after when we was, you know stormed the league. I think we got about 102 points that season and yeah flew to the Premier League mate take a sip of your coffee because I am going to ask you about this game basically for anyone listening that isn't a football fan it's, it's really quite famous so you know you look at it on YouTube Leicester at the time were absolutely flying as were Watford penalty in the last minute of the game to win the game I can't remember who it was that stepped up to take the pen. Anthony Knockout took the penalty. He's not even a normal penalty taker as well. That's the worst thing. Breaks down the other end. Troy Deeney scores. Absolute scenes. Leicester devastated. Talk us through that. How did that feel at the time? And does it haunt you still now? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's horrible. It was horrible. Because um, you go from probably such a, such a massive high of like... It's a penalty, you know, we're going to, like, it's the last minute, it's the last kick of the game. Just score and we're into the playoff finals. You know, everyone's, like, excited. The bench would have been stood up. You know, everyone's thinking, it's going to happen. And then the opposite, the absolute opposite happens where somehow we've gone from about to score to, they, to them scoring. 
and it's just astonishing, you know, when how it unfolds is astonishing because I remember it clearly. The penalty got saved, and then he had a second chance to score again on the rebound, and he saved it again. Then I think it went wide, and they was just breaking down the wing towards our goal, and everyone's scrambling to get back. Everyone's still probably shocked about why you not scored it. Um, and then, yeah, they've crossed it in, and Troy Deeney, who I know very well is a good mate of mine, goes and scores. And then that was it, you know. So it was like we didn't even have a chance to digest it all, you know. It was just such a wave of emotion. Well, I do feel for you, and I think, well, I feel for Knockout probably more because mm-hmm. that has followed him around for a long time, that clip, hasn't it? But, you know, after the game and, and going forward from that, I mean, testament to the management, to yourselves as a team, coming back from that and then going on to get promoted in the future because you could have crumbled, you could have fallen apart from that. How was that managed? How was Knockout supported? We had a, such a good team and ever since I've been at Leicester, you know, we've had such a good culture. We would have given Anthony Knockout full support he needed, you know, we're always in it together, you know, and you know, I've been, I was the captain. My kind of explanation to him is just, you know, it is what it is. You can't change what's just happened. Don't feel like you, you've let the team down. You know, we're all in it together. You know, when you kick the ball and score, we all kick the ball. When we concede, we all concede. And I think that does gave us extra determination the next season to, you know, let's not even try and go through the playoffs. Let's just win it and do it the right way so we don't have to you know, go through this type of heartache again. So you did, you got promoted to the Premier League and you got to play with some unbelievable footballers. Esteban Cambiasso, Kante, Mares, Jimmy Vardy. You've played with World Cup winners, Champions League winners, people that have gone on to achieve amazing things in the game. But they were a group of individuals at the time and you were an underachieving team. So when you get these really high-performing individuals come and join you, what do you do as a team to bring them together, to get them on board? I guess what I'm asking you, Wes, is as a captain, as a leader, what was the secret to your success during that period? What did you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Because we've been so close for so long, you know, we had a real, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it was really, really tight. You know, we had some togetherness. And we used to do a lot of off-field um, stuff together. You know, we used to go for food together all the time. We used to go for, for drinks together all the time. I think that just helped to build our kind of our bond. Um, and I'm a big, big fan of obviously creating that kind of culture, that bond, because I know how far that can get you when you're out on the pitch and things aren't going your way. You still can get results because everyone will stick together and grind it out. It's when you have some players or some people that, you know, not buying into your culture when things won't go your way or more likely than not, you won't get the results you're expecting. And anyone that will come into our team would buy into what we're all about. Uh, and that becomes that comes from the, the management as well, you know. Yeah, I think that just, you know, helped us so much throughout kind of my Leicester journey um, and what we went on to accomplish. So obviously I've listed some amazing players there that you've played with. You're obviously included in that. Which one would you say had the biggest impact on the club or you... You know, you looked at them and thought, wow, what a player. Was there anyone that had a moment? I oh, know, I'm sure they all had their moments, but who had the biggest impact when you first saw them? I think when you look at the biggest impact, when we first stepped into the Premier League and you signed someone like Esteban Cambiasso, everyone's in shock thinking, what's this guy, you know, into Milan, Real Madrid? That was a bit of a, an impact on the team in terms of shock and excitement. You know, he's probably had the biggest impact. And, you know, so you mentioned some names there, you know, Mares, um, Canty, and they came to our club unknown. You know, we've signed them from League Two France and stuff like that. No one's heard of them. No one's heard of Mares. No one's heard of Canty. You know, they got their reputation at Leicester um, and then gone on to do amazing things. Yeah, so the only person, even Vards, you know, come from non-league Fleetwood. We had players that no one no one had heard of. Leo Joa, Shinji Okazaki. No one's heard of these players and there's players that are played in Europe that we added to our squad. Kante and Mares then, they've joined from League Two, absolutely unknown. Did they settle in well? Well, I'll start with Kante and I think he he's the only person that I've ever played with and this goes for the whole team speaking on behalf of the whole team. He's the only person that on the first day of training, everyone stood back and thought, who is this guy? What an absolute player. This guy's probably, you know, five foot seven, not much on him, but he shocked us. Everyone like literally was like, 
did you see that guy? And no one has ever made that impression on anybody. I don't think in probably football, really, you know, it's very rare. And that's the impression he made. And then what he's gone on to achieve, I'm not surprised, you know, World Cups, Champions Leagues, you know, players of the years and all this type of stuff. And that, yeah, that's the first initial impression he made on the team in terms of playing. The guy's the most humble guy you've ever, ever will come across ever in not outside of football, inside of football, ever. You know, he don't say no, he don't hardly speak. He Three years, two years we played with him at Leicester and he was just in the same clothes he was in the day one, the day he left, you know. He used to drive a mini, uh, mini Cooper, and to this day, he's obviously gone on to achieve so much. He's playing for Chelsea. I heard he's still driving a Mini Cooper. <laughs> you know, so he's, he's, you know, he's the best guy. He's got the best smile. Love it when I see him or come across him. Um, and he's, you know, what a, what a human being he is. And uh, Morris, you know, he came to us. Lots of tricks and flicks, but very lightweight, you know, doing stuff at the wrong time in the wrong areas. Uh, so it took him a while to kind of adapt to English football and kind of the levels where he needed to be at, you know, in terms of the physicality, in terms of the mentality as well. Uh, couldn't speak English. He picked up so quick. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, he used to sit a couple seats away from me in, in the dressing room and, uh, yeah, tried to just integrate him as, as best as possible. But it always helps when there's a few people I... Kante and Knocker at the time, you know, a few French lads that could help him, you know, feel comfortable and, and blend him into the team. And he's another one that, you know, just got better and better and better. It's really interesting listening to you, Wes, because the one thing I've realised is that probably the best moment of your life, winning the Premier League title, has followed probably one of the worst periods of your life, almost getting relegated with Leicester City. Now, this period was known as the Great Escape, and, you know, you can go into that in a second, but... I'm really interested to hear the kind of mindset and, and the things that you went through at the time because, as you know, I'm really interested in growth mindset, fixed mindset and the, the concept that so many people quit before they get to the peak of the mountain. They don't realise how far they've got, they don't see the opportunities before they quit. And obviously for you, there would have been plenty of opportunities to quit and, and jump ship as Leicester City were underperforming, but you didn't, you decided to stay on. So talk me through how you kind of turned that really dark moment into such an amazing opportunity to succeed. Yeah, first season in the, in the Premier League. Um, and weirdly enough, you know, obviously it was down at the bottom. We went on a rotten spell of, of losing games. But in-house, we didn't think it was actually doing too bad with results, you know. was losing games by one goal, and that goal will come from a world-class finish or a mistake, you know. And we felt very, very hard done by, you know. We felt we was doing okay, you know, good enough to pick up results, but won't get the results. Um, and I think, you know, it probably came down to, obviously, you know, it's getting down to crunch time, and everyone's written us off. You know, no one survived and stayed in the Premier League when you've been on that amount of points at the bottom of the league. And I remember the manager just making, you know, a small tactical change. We went to three at the back, you know, and Vasilevsky came in. Uh, and that just made us a bit more solid. And we picked up a result. And first, once we got that result, it kind of, the mindset changed. And instead of, like, going into games thinking, right, I hope we don't lose, was going into games thinking, we actually can win. So you kind of, you know, take your foot off the brakes a little bit and you start to have more confidence in, in going forward and, and taking a bit more risks. And it paid off. It paid off and we went on a, you know, a run of results and we climbed out and then we survived, you know, and they called it the great escape. Yeah, amazing achievement, mate. And I think sometimes people underestimate how difficult it is to get away from the bottom of the table. Um, it's probably equally as difficult to, to go on and win something, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That was, you know... That was one of the biggest achievements in my career at Leicester. So Nigel Pearson leaving, big shock to you or did you guys see it come in? Um, yeah, it was a big shock. You know, what he did for the club, uh, what he installed in terms of that core group, the cultures and behaviours. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a, a big shock, but I knew that came down to, you know, decision way above the, the players' head and, and it's, you know, senior management and, and stuff like that. So we had to just, you know, deal with it best we could. And 
yeah, you know, we couldn't dwell on it too much because it wasn't on for another manager, was it? Yeah, exactly. Claudio Ranieri comes in. Obviously, for anyone that doesn't know who he is, won the league with Chelsea, managed some really high-profile clubs, but still raised a few eyebrows. Bit of a kind of up-and-down career, I'd say, as a manager. So, coming in, how did you guys feel about that? Yeah, you know, he's got great reputation. Managed Chelsea, you know, managed some big teams in, in Europe. Um, so, it was a bit of a surprise, you know. We, we've managed to get a a manager that's got good pedigree, but like you said, you know, is 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 probably in recent years he's had less success. So we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what to expect, and probably just went into went into it open open eyes and just seeing what would happen, I suppose. And um, funny enough, I didn't. So he, he would have came. Claudio would have came in pre season. Um, but I didn't meet him to a few days before the first game of the season because I was away on international duty yeah. uh, playing for Jamaica and we got to a final. So that literally my whole summer was taken up playing for, for Jamaica. Um, and then I landed back on the Tuesday, I think. And then I was in training on a Thursday. And obviously, you know, speaking to you know, some of the senior management, speaking to some of the players, I knew the manager had come in, um, just took over training and he's, you know, took preseason games. And I remember thinking, I just hope I'm back in the team, you know, because he's not saw me play. He's not laid eyes on me. Um, fair to Claudio, you know, um, he understood the situation. I was away on international. When I came back, you know, I think I first trained on the Thursday and I was playing on the Saturday, you know, and I was straight back in the team, which was great. But that was a relief. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think everyone kind of, every player worries about, you know, if they're going to play. And obviously me being the captain, um, and played, you know, all the last season before. You know, you just hope to still be in the starting lineup, and you just have to. Uh, the manager obviously picks you on faith, I suppose, and what he's heard about you, and you probably would have watched some clips and stuff like that. Um, but you always still worry about if you're going to play. I remember watching an interview with him where he was very complimentary about you. I think he called you the perfect captain, yeah. but he also said you were like Blue from the Jungle Book. Yeah, I try and play that one down as much as possible, to be fair. Cause I like to give a, a tough persona. Um, but yeah, he's killed me a little <laughs> bit with that one. But I think he just, you know, means in probably, you know, don't get angry too much on the pitch. You know, I'm a, I have a calm demeanour and approach to, to things and... Yeah, it's a weird description, uh, but that's why you must, you must see me as that. Then. Mate, massive compliment. Called you the perfect captain in the same sentence, but yeah. I think, you know, Baloo, who, whose favourite character isn't Baloo in the Jungle Book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's worse characters, I suppose. You could have called exactly. me uh, the orangutan, whatever his name is. <laughs> <laughs> King Louis, mate. I've got kids yeah, in yeah, King Louis, yeah. <laughs> So, right, this is the bit I think everyone wants to talk about and hear you talk about. Odds of 5,000 to 1, you're going into the season. Talk me through that year, break it down into, into maybe milestones or incidents that happened that where you thought, you know, you know, just to give some background to anybody listening again, almost every pundit, everybody in the country thought you were going to stop with your run at some point, me included. I thought, oh, it's not going to last, you know, squad depth, you know, your Man United, your Arsenal, your Chelsea's, they're going to kick on in the second half of the season. And you guys just absolutely obliterated the league. You know, you just kept knocking down team after team after team. How did that come about? And with those 5,000 to 1 odds, you know, was that something that drove you on? Or did, were you even aware of that? At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. Nah, that all came out after we won the league. You know, but obviously to just go back to probably the beginning, off the back of the great escape, you know, everyone kind of written us off as this team's going to go down this season. You know, um, 
lucky to escape relegation that season. It's not going to happen again. So obviously we've gone into that season thinking, right, we don't want to be in the same position. Let's just be a bit more comfortable. Let's, you know, not be in a relegation zone. Let's try and stay out of the relegation zone. And just, you know, we just focus on surviving again. That's, you know, we just wanted to survive the season and get to another season in the Premier League. Um, and yeah, you know, start of the season, results going well. Um, and the season continues, results are still going well. And it just kept on going, kept on going. Um, so we're there at the top of the league, you know, there or thereabouts at the top of the league. Um, and to be fair to Claudio, in the media, you know, those trying to get the punchline out of him, like, oh, you're top of the league, you're going to win the league. He'll just play it down, you know, fantastically. He'll just talk about, now we've got a target, 40 points. We just want to survive this season. That's the target. We want to go there. But meanwhile, we was, you know, flying high, beating big teams, getting, picking up results, picking up points and just, you know, going along steadily. And I think the other teams would probably not take it seriously. They was probably thinking, oh, yeah, they're doing great. But they'll fall off at some point. Yeah, let's not worry about them. You know, so that worked out great for us. Clyde is doing his bit in the media, you know, playing it down. And then we got to the 40 points and was uh, then was asking, surely, are you going to win the league? You know, the media. And he'll say, no, maybe we can get to Champions League or the European spots, you know. So he's playing it down even even more. Meanwhile, winter, February, winter, you know, we're still going and we're still up there. Um, and I think it comes to a point for everyone where, like, in-house, we kept ourselves grounded. We wasn't thinking about, oh, we're going to win the league, we're going to win the league. We're just playing the games. We're just going out there each week thinking, you know what, we're flying, we're doing great, let's just keep it going. You know, I personally wasn't thinking about we're going to win the league. Um, I think it comes to a point for every player in the team at the time where that that uh, mentality changed to, wow, we could actually do it. For me, it's when we played Man City away and we're beating a 3-1. Um, I think Man City might have just won it the previous season. Yeah. So, I remember this game really well. <laughs> yeah, so we I was like after the game thinking, whoa, we just beat Man City and they're back, yeah, three one. You know, I think it's the end of February as well. You know, there's only a couple of months left before the season ends. This could actually happen. You know. So all of a sudden my mindset changed a little bit, thinking, no, we can't like lose any games now. Like we need to like, you know, continue. Ironically, the next game we lost, which I think it was Arsenal. Yeah, we lost, so, you know, I think we lost three games all season or somewhere along those lines. We lost against Arsenal and it deflated us a lot. You know, it was like, oh, man, what, you know, this is is this is going to kill us or what? We, we didn't know what was going to happen next, you know. We just beat Man City, took a loss against Arsenal. You know, we're still at the top of the league, but is this where the wheels fall off? And what spurred us on? was how Arsenal celebrated. So we seen on social media, they was going crazy in the dressing rooms, like they just beat Barcelona. It was like, this is just little old Leicester, you know, we're supposed to be in the relegation zone. Why are they going crazy like that? And then we just went on a winning run, um, got to, you know, the Man United game where I scored and we got a point from that game, ended the draw. Just dropped that winning win. <laughs> well, that's the key game because that point, it was enough to get us across the line because... We had to sit at home and watch the Chelsea Tottenham game and, and watch that unfold. And yeah, when that you know ended a draw, that was enough to keep us or give us the, the championship. Were you at Vardy's party that night? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because you know such a big game on the line. You know we're hoping Tottenham's going to lose. I was like figuring out what to do. You know Vardy has invited us round, um, so there's probably about maybe about nine, ten of us around the house. Um, watching it and obviously the first half was 2-0 down so it didn't go as, as we wanted so it was just everyone's thinking right it's okay we still got our next game to, to play and win um, and then the second half was a completely different story and yeah the scenes the emotions everything just went crazy in the house um, everyone was just buzzing just on the, such a high that you've never believed you know these this is Leicester you know we weren't supposed to win the league you know this yeah. is against the norm you know this is against all science all predictions this is 
not supposed to happen, and it did. How long did that party last at the Vardy's, or did you get off and leave them to it? Yeah, I remember there must have been a good 20 minutes of just shouting and screaming. And have you ever done shouting and screaming for 20 minutes? You're knackered after it. And I, <laughs> and I remember just literally everyone just went quiet. It was just silence. Everyone was just like sat in a corner or sat on the phone because messages would have been just flooding in constantly. Yeah. So everyone had like half an hour just... Just no noise, just quiet on the phone. And then I remember, like, it kind of started to build up again. I think I went to Leicester City because we started to see the news and everything. And Leicester City was, everyone was gathering in the stadium. Oh, you went out um, at that night into the city? Yeah, yeah. We seen people climbing up lampposts. We seen cars with people on top driving. It looked like it just exploded in Leicester City. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I remember, I think I just, we found a bar, like a quiet bar. Well, not quite, yeah. It wasn't much people in the bar and we just cracked on. In the bar, I just celebrated. Yeah, and there wasn't much training the next day. And then, obviously, you know, it was more celebrations, media all at the training ground. The owners flew in. And, yeah, it wasn't much training that day, I, I tell you. But, yeah, it was an incredible time. So you've had some amazing managers and leaders through your career. What would you say were the, the three features of the best leaders you've played under? I think trust is definitely one. I think it's important as a captain, um, to be close to the manager and him to have your trust. Um, and I always try to help the manager in a sense where literally when it's on the pitch, I'll say to the manager, when it's on the pitch, don't worry, like I'll make sure everyone's on job. And before you do the next one, which which manager did you have the most amount of trust with? Yeah, Nigel Pearson was was really close, you know, and I think he yeah, he's the type of manager that, you know, I try to give him the, the confidence that I didn't have to, to worry as much. You know, every manager's like, oh, I don't know how he's going to play. But I like to, on the pitch, try and, like, make sure the players are doing their job, trying to, if someone's having a bad time, help them. Is everyone, if anyone's having a, you know, a good time, you know, give them the encouragement to make them play even better. You know, try and do things on the pitch to, to help the team as much as possible. Um I think another key characteristic you already mentioned is the resilience. You know, when things aren't going well, it's so difficult. You know, you go through, every player's been through spells where you just can't find a result. You know, things are going wrong um, and you can't like, you know, you, you just can't, you, you get lost a little bit and you can't find a, a way to, to come back. And I think that resilience, you know, I think for me, how I deal with, the, the 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 losing side of football or when things are going really bad you've lost against a team you shouldn't have lost against you know I try to look at it analyse it and then put it to bed and I always couldn't wait for the next match to begin because that's the chance to put things right so after that result everyone's devastated you look at your performance we'll analyse it in the in the training ground and then put it to bed. And I think that's the best managers, you know, would look at it, see where we went wrong, how we're going to address it, and then that's it. We don't want to hear about it again, you know, because we've got another game to focus on. And um, probably a third thing would be how managers create a, a culture. I mentioned earlier in the interview how we was a close-knit team uh, but the manager and everyone's got to buy into that, you know. And I think to build bonds, you've got to do a lot of stuff, not just on the pitch, off the pitch. Because I think a lot of managers look at players as as robots, you know. You're supposed to play to the best of your ability and give this output every single time. Go home, come back, go home, come back. But the best managers for me will look at the bigger picture. So I think it's important just to do a lot of things together off the pitch. And you get to know people in a different light, you know, and... When you've been on a night out, you know, the next couple of days, once you get back to training, everyone's just talking about what happened, you know. We've had some great times. We've been to, sometimes the owners will take us to, you know, a restaurant or a casino and we have a few drinks and you got someone like Shinji Okazaki, who's Japanese, can't speak much English, on the karaoke yeah, so <laughs> once we come back to train, everyone's talking about Shinji, giving him a high five, you know, saying, oh, he was amazing on the karaoke and just little things like that just builds bonds and builds, you know, togetherness. And I think that's important. 
That's really nice. I think just last couple of questions for you now, Wes. First of all, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing to listen to you talk about all the success you've had in your career. And just reflecting on something we had a few weeks ago, we had a guest on called Shari Hawkins. She's the, you might not know her, but she's the team captain for Team USA as an athlete. So really high profile athlete in America, something like a million followers. So she shared her interview with, with her social media following. And we had hundreds of messages talking because Shari started talking about the balance of all the highs you get in sport, but then some of the tragedy and loss you you feel. So we had a lot of people reach out and start talking about their challenges that they faced. I mean, I don't know how comfortable you feel to talk about this, but the tragedy that happened with the chairman was massive. It was felt across the world. I mean, you were at the club at the time. How significant an event was that? I mean, for people listening, they aren't aware the chairman's helicopter crashed. In, was it into the stadium or into the, the car park? Yeah, um, when was it? Um, 2018. Yeah. Um, so the owner, you know, very popular, loved by not just the players, but the fans also and the city as a whole, because he'd done so much. He was so generous um, and such a likeable person. He built wards for yeah. the hospital. He was constantly dino- donating to, to charities. Um, the fans would have a great experience at, at matches because he'd always give away, you know, we'll have a, it'd be his birthday, so it'd be like a free beer and a, and a, and a pie. Um, lots of these little things to build his reputation, but to probably showcase the type of person he is, which is, you know, such a, a caring, giving person uh, that's so generous. And even with the players, you know, in-house, he will spend a lot of time with us um, and he have lots of banter with us, you know, and, and he was so relaxed. Say he's, you know, a big, you know, multi-million business, multi-million yeah. millionaire business person. He was so humble with it. You wouldn't think that, you know, and you know, some of the things he, he would do for us and some of the places he would take us, you know, and that's just to make us feel happy, make us, you know, we wanted us to enjoy ourselves Um and he was a big, he was a big believer of you know, if you work hard um, and do the right things, I will look after you. I, I will take care of you, and um, that's what he wanted for us. You know, one of the key things he would always say: just win, win for me, and I'm happy. You know, and we'll do anything for him. So obviously, you know, you may have heard or may not have heard of the tragedy where he would fly into the stadium with the with the helicopter and. Um, land on the centre of the pitch and then fly away and because you'll fly to, to London and stuff. And, um, yeah, fortunately, one occasion, you know, the helicopter malfunctioned when it was taken off and then landed in the car park at the side of the the stadium. And, yeah, he, he passed away from that. Um, and it was difficult for the boys, you know, with how close we was, how close he was to the fans and, and the city, you know, you can probably research and look back. There was so much sympathy from the city, but not just the city, all football clubs all over. And everyone, you know, sent their condolences, came down to the stadium, laid flowers, and the whole side of the stadium was covered in flowers and shirts and some memorabilia. And that's because, you know, he was, he was a loved person. And yeah, we... You know, we did find it difficult. You know, we didn't train for two or three days because we're just tr- still coming to the terms of it because I think it's more kind of the circumstances how it happened half after a match uh, and the way it happened. Were you still um, there? Were you guys still in the stadium when it happened? I mean, everyone left, so it was maybe you know, an hour and a half after the, after the game, you know, maybe a couple hours after the game. So most people, fortunately, have left the stadium and, and headed home. So it was pretty much empty. Um, surrounding everywhere and yeah that's when it happened and yeah you know we all eventually heard about it through our whatsapp groups and stuff like that and yeah it was you know it took a while to get over it and we missed a a match or two and then you know we came to terms with it a little bit better and I mentioned it earlier you know we knew what would make him happy what what could we do to, to please him and that was to play and to win you know, so that first match back was very difficult, but we got the win for him. And yeah, it was a difficult time. Uh, and still to this day, you know, we still, you know, remember him in, in lots of ways around the stadium and um, amongst the players. And yeah, um, 
it was a difficult time, but you know, I suppose you have to kind of move forward as best as you can when you're ready and, and do what they would want, which is I know he would want to for us to continue to play, make him proud and then to win games. Did you have any support after that, like sports psychologist? Yeah, support was offered, you know, from the from the club, um, if you need it. Um, guys did come in to, to offer support, um, talk to, to them, psychological support, mental support. It was there for, for the players that, that needed it, uh, which was great because some players did, did need that. I mean, obviously, as, as honest as you feel comfortable to be, because there'll be some listeners that have gone through loss or grief. Was there any kind of tips or things that you were taught or anything that you did to kind of help yourself get through that moment that you could share with our listeners if they're going through a similar, you know, if they've lost somebody? or Yeah. Um, but when you do lose someone that's close, you know, it's difficult to kind of not dwell on it, I suppose. Um, I think my only advice would be to remember the, the, the fond memories of them, you know, um, and think about what would make them proud, what would make them happy. How could you, how can you honour their memory and what can you do to, you know, even help their family and offer that support? So I think just the way just to get through that, probably the depression of it all is to think about the positives, think about the good time and think about, you know, this in the, in the nicest possible way. There's nothing you can do about it and you have to move on and just focus on the positives. Well, we talk a lot about the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, which is the five stages of grief and how you need to work through each of the five stages to get to acceptance. I think for some people it's easier than others. Some people bounce back and forth between stages, but ultimately, you know, it's about finding what works for you and just being kind and compassionate to yourself when you're going through that kind of those five stages. Right, so moving on, Wes, thanks for sharing that. The last thing I want to point out, I've got a statistic for you. So the year that um, Forrest came second, you only missed four games. The year that the Leicester won the championship, you only missed one game. And the year that Leicester won the Premier League, you played every single minute of every game. I mean, are you really immune? Are you like Robocop? <laughs> or are you just really strong mentally that you play with niggles that maybe other lads wouldn't play with? Well, physically, it did catch up to me in the end. <laughs> then my final couple of years, you know, I had all sorts of issues and problems in terms of physicality. Um, but the mental side of it, you know, I used to love, I start to enjoy, um, not enjoy training a lot more. So, and just enjoy the matches, you know, I've always kind of think, you know what, forget about training for me. I'm just ready to play the matches and I can play them each and every week. And I think I've got the, I don't know, the mental fortitude from my championship days because it's relentless, you know, game after game after game, Monday, Tuesday is constant. And I think just that kind of um, mental fortitude that I gained from playing the constant amount of games, you know, it just became normal when I was used to it. So when you're playing in the Premier League and it's a lot less games, I could cope a lot better. But it is difficult to just, you know, that that repetitive cycle of playing games, you know, there's times where I was like, oh, just give us a break, Gaffer. You know, <laughs> your legs are killing. But at the same time, you know, you, you want to help the team, you know, yeah, you want to win and you want to be a part of it. You know, so I played a lot of games, over 750, I think it, officially is um which is fantastic for, for like a local lad um and to achieve you know some of the recognition i have you know that one of the, i think the biggest recognitions for me people must think you know it's probably the fa cup of the premier league but to be recognized from your pit is 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 you know so satisfying for me and to be in the i've been in the premier league team of the year um I think the championship team of the year three times, League One, I mean, League, uh, yeah, League One uh, team of the year uh, and the team of the decade, you know. So that's my biggest accomplishments, getting that recognition from my peers because they're the ones that vote for the best players in the, the league that season. So they'll have a choice of 11 players in each of the positions to choose. And for them to choose me on all them occasions, you know, I think that's one of the, the biggest... Um, 
biggest pluses I've had in my career. Looking back at your career, you've had some unbelievable success and you've also faced a lot of adversity and challenge as well. And now you're transitioning into the world of work. You know, you're studying on, on the Sports Director's uh, Mastership Programme with VSI. What would you go back and say to a young Wes at 15? You've been released by Notts County. You've just gone back to college. You know, all of the success, all of the difficult times, what you're going through now, what message would you go back and say, this is what life is about, Wes? I'll probably just... I'll probably just, uh, which I kind of did anyway, but just to keep faith, you know, just to, just to, to keep going, don't get disheartened and, and to keep faith because you can't control your destiny. All you can do is the right things. Um, so as long as you're doing the right things, hopefully it pans out. You know, in hindsight, I'd like to say, you know, I did the right things and, and, it, and it planned out how I, I would hoped, you know, and it did, you know, we spoke off here earlier and I probably did things the the reverse way round, had my success at the end of the career rather than starting off and having success younger and then tailing off and dropping down the leagues at the end. I did it the opposite opposite way round. I'm not sure how many people have actually done that, but um, yeah, I'd just stick to what you know you're good at um, and have faith and have confidence in your ability to deliver what you need to deliver. Wes, it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you today. One of the Premier League's greatest ever captains the insights you've given, the honesty you've spoken with. It's been really amazing to listen to you talk and I know I've taken a lot away from today and all for the price of a kit. (laughs) Yes, mate, no problem. Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning organisation. A big thanks to all of you for listening today. If you've liked what you've heard, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, completely free of charge. See you next time.